to turn to 1 Samuel 25. Listen, look at me. I'm going to turn there with you. So I hope you have your Bibles with you. Let's get them opened. And remember, I keep asking you, bring your Bibles to church. Just in case you didn't know, we're always going to be preaching out of the Bible. So you kind of need your Bibles. And I want you to see what's on the Bible. I want you to be able to keep track of what I'm saying by what's in your Bible. So let's get your Bibles open to 1 Samuel chapter 25. And this is going to be, I hope, a very encouraging message for you. We're going to meet our unsung hero in verse, verses 2 and 3. So let's turn there together. Let's jump right into the story. So here we go. You're ready? Now look at me for a second. I'm going to give you the outline. This is going to tempt some of you to fill it out and then take a nap, but that would be the wrong thing to do. So let's get our minds ready. Here we go. Abigail is a faithful wife, a wise woman, and a godly example. That's what we're going to see today in this passage. She was a faithful wife. Let's start there. The Bible invites us. Now look at me just for one more moment. We'll get into the text in a second. The Bible invites us into the lives of its characters. When they come onto the scenes of Scripture, when they come onto the stage of Scripture, it, the Bible invites us to be able to get into the lives of these people. But before we do that, now here's going to be a bit of a riveting question I'm going to ask you. Before we look at our two first people that the Bible is going to introduce us to in this passage, let me turn it around for a moment and ask you a question. And I'm sitting on this question too. This is what I've been thinking of throughout the week. And here it is. Now, this is where you interact. This is where your mind gets put into gear. You don't just sit there in neutral. Don't just not think during a sermon. You interact. You think. Sometimes you disagree. That's fine. That means your mind's engaged. Sometimes, oh, I never saw that before. Or, you know what, I wonder if that's me that the Bible's talking about. That's how we engage. So here's the question. If God was introducing you, don't think of the person next to you. If God was introducing you to the generations following you, what would he say? This is a rhetorical question, meaning you don't need to respond yet. I appreciate those who did, but let me just get you to think quietly. I want you to answer this. You ready? If God were introducing you, just think about it in your mind, to the generations following you, what would he say? Now, let me give you a minute. We're all going to be quiet. Now, think about that. Maybe if you're like me, you kind of got to close your eyes a little bit or look down to think and concentrate. What would God say about you? Now, I want you to see me. I want you to look at me because this is so important. If I could just sit with you in your living room and make sure what I'm about to tell you gets down in your heart, that would be actually preferable for me. But I'm up here and you're sitting in the pew. So let me do the best I can at getting you to receive what I'm about to say. How you answer that question... God were to introduce you to the generations following you, what would he say? The way you answer that question can move you to helpfully assess your life. But I want you to know this, and this is what I got to get down to your heart. I want you to know that God would be very, very honest 
Can you see that? I'm going to hold that in this hand. God would be very honest about you, and he would be incredibly loving. God can merge those. The Bible says we got to learn to do that. We've got to learn to speak the truth in love, Ephesians 4.15. Listen, if you're, if you're speaking the truth to somebody, and it's about a negative aspect of their life or a character quality of their life, and you're not loving, then you're not speaking like God. God holds those in balance. So the loving, honest description of you would be what? Or this is how you're thinking. You know, I think if God were to, now, now hear this, and then we're going to jump into this text. If God were to introduce you to the generations following you, I'm pretty sure this is true what I'm about to tell you. I think you would find what he wrote or what he said so much more loving and gracious than you could ever imagine. While at the same time, what he says would fill you with such a desire to serve him more. That's just the ability that God has when he speaks of people, when he speaks of you, and when he speaks of me. So with that, let's meet our unsung hero. Let's go to verse 2. We're going to meet her, her husband first. And there was a man in Maon, that's how you pronounce that, whose business was in Carmel, a few miles apart. The man was very rich. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. Can you even imagine a livestock of that size? He was shearing his sheep in Carmel. Now the name of the man was Nabal, and the name of his wife, Abigail. The woman was discerning and beautiful, but the man was harsh and badly behaved. He was a Calebite. Nabal is rich. Here we go. We're invited to see him. He's being introduced on the stage of Scripture to us. He is possessing 3,000 sheep, 1,000 goats. Now listen, when the Bible is that precise, now listen, look at me. When the Bible is that precise, it's giving us a hint of what's going on in Nabal's heart. Those numbers betray a man who knew as exactly what he had. Let me ask you, let's get ourselves into this. Do you know what your stock portfolio is worth now? How much money you have in all of your accounts, the current value of your holdings? If so, maybe, perhaps, money is getting a hold of your heart. You're paying attention to it, maybe a little bit too much. I know people who are, are checking their stocks multiple times throughout the day. More time in the stock page than they are in the Word of God. Well, we've got very precise numbers. We've got an indication that Nabal is a greedy man. And so now onto the stage comes his wife, Abigail, and she is our unsung hero. Now, a little bit of background. Nabal, his name means dolt or fool or foolish. Abigail, and you got to hear this, her name means my father is joyful. In other words, when she was born, she gave her father such joy that eight days after her birth, when her father named her, as was the custom in Israel, he said, I want to name her Abigail, for she has given me much joy. But she's married to a dolt. She's married to a fool. He's harsh. He's boorish. Look at verse 3. He's badly behaved, the Bible says. 
Listen, this is incredibly descriptive. And she is beautiful inside, and she is beautiful outside. She is discerning. She's wise, it means, or morally upstanding. So we've got a gruff, unkind, unpleasable, and just plain unloving man married to a woman who is everything in contrast. He's a disgrace to his lineage. That's why it says he's descended from Caleb, one of the two faithful spies in Israel, upheld as a hero. He's a Calebite, but he's anything but like Caleb. He has a good name, he belongs to a good family, but it's no guarantee that you're going to earn a good name, and he certainly didn't. And he should have known that a good name, Proverbs says, is to be chosen rather than great riches. Now listen, did you hear that? Your name is better than money. Your reputation is better than millions of dollars. If you have millions of dollars and you have a terrible reputation, you're a Nabal. And his servants, they couldn't even speak to him. Look at verse 17. They go around Nabal to speak to Abigail. And the reason is, the servant says, he is such a worthless man that one cannot even speak to him. This is the way the servants describe their master. He's unteachable. He's unadvisable. He gets defensive when anyone tries to say something to him. But Abigail herself, later speaking to David, is going to say about her husband, verse 25, let not my Lord regard, let not David regard this worthless fellow Nabal, for his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name, and folly is with him. Even Abigail says, listen, I'm married to a fool. Now you might be asking, and I think you probably should be, if she's so discerning, why did she marry this guy? Well, I'm going to offer you two possible answers for that. The first one, very, very quickly. Now, I hope you listen. If you're not married, you better listen to this. Marriage changes people. And by God's grace, you change for the better, but sometimes people change for the worse. They're not the same person that you walk down the aisle to. But the better answer is this. Marriages at that time were arranged marriages. They were typically done for two reasons. Finances and politics. They weren't married for happiness. That was very rarely the case back in that day of the Bible. She was beautiful. He was wealthy. It was a boon for her father and a definite marrying up for Nabal, a true beauty in the beast. Yet Abigail is nothing but faithful, uncomplaining, and loving to this man. Now, let's stop and pause for a second. Because some of us, and this can apply to husbands as well as wives, ought to start feeling a little conviction. And if you're not married, you better learn wisdom from what you're seeing. Sometimes marriage can be miserable. But how you act within that miserable marriage brings glory to God or strips glory from God. God can overcome even a bad marriage, and he's going to do this for Abigail. Nabal, her husband, his end was fast approaching. But first, we're going to see that our unsung hero was number two, a very wise 
woman. She's a faithful wife. She's a wise woman. Here we go. We're going to see David. He's not the king yet. Saul is the king of Israel. David's about to become the king. He's the future king. But he is running from Saul. Samuel dies. Look at verse 1 of chapter 25. Samuel, the prophet who anointed David king, dies. His confidant, his mentor, his friend. And now he's grieving. He moves down into Paran. He's grieving. He moves out into the country. He's fleeing from Saul. He, he ironically moves to an area where Saul tried twice to kill him. And he's got 600 men with him, and they've been out in the fields, and they've been nearby. All of these 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats, and all of the sheep herders of Nabal, and they're encamped around him, and they're preventing anything bad from happening to Nabal's lively stock, livestock. But now we find out it's the time for shearing. Now, you know what that means, right? That's when the sheep are going to be gathered. They're going to be driven from the grazing lands. And they're going to be dr driven and delivered to the shearers. And the herdsmen are going to collect a fee for doing so. Now I want you to know this. Nabal's about to cash in. He's about to get all of this wool from 3,000 sheep. And his payday is there. He's about to make a ton of money. And, Na and David claims that fee he's been protecting them they've been delivering the sheep to the shearer and he claims the fee that is rightfully his so he sends messengers to nabal with a very humble request for supplies we need food We're running low they make the appeal verse eight it's a festal day that means it's a day of the of the jewish people's festivals it's a day where god's word commands all of israel to share generously with those in need. And they come to Nabal, but Nabal, look at verse 10, foolishly rejects the request, and he adds insult to injury. He says, there are many servants these days who are breaking away from their masters. That's a very oblique or sideways reference to David. You're running away from Saul. This is your fault. I'm not helping. David is furious. Now, you might be familiar with the David who is a man after God's own heart, and that he was. But he is incensed. He is enraged. He is already grieving Samuel's death. Listen, if you've ever been in grief and somebody insults you, that grief can flare into anger faster than you can even know that it's happening. David is enraged. He's had enough, and he mobilizes his army. He's going to go kill Nabal, and he's going to kill every male in Nabal's family. He forgets his own words that he uttered when he faced Goliath, the Philistine giant, in 1 Samuel 17, where he says, The Lord saves not with sword and spear, for the, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. David said, no way. This battle is mine. I'm going to dispense the justice. Now, Abigail learns about this. She learns what her husband said to David. She learns that David is furious. She learns that David is on his way to kill every male-born person in Nabal's household. And so she does what a godly and what a wise woman would do. She immediately gathers provisions. She takes him to David. Now listen, watch this. Let's slow down a little bit. Gets on a donkey. 
listen, horses were when a king was riding to war. Donkeys were when they were on missions of peace. It's a wise woman. She's on a donkey speaking to David even before he meets her, that this is a mission of peace. And she meets David, and she gets off of the donkey, and she bows down to the ground before him, and she presents the food that she has brought to him. She's an, she's an incredible peacemaker. Listen, there's only three positions you're ever going to have when it comes to peace. I'd write these down if I were you. You're either a peace breaker, you're the kind of person that you like conflict. Conflict gets you going. When you're mad and when you get everybody else mad around you, all of a sudden you're calm. It's like you sailed into easy waters. Everything's fine now because now everybody else is mad. That's a peace breaker. But then there's peace fakers and peace fakers. You know what? They don't like conflict. Conflict unsettles them. So the fastest way that they can get through it, they get through it, and usually they sweep it under the rug. Usually, usually they really just want it to go away as a peace faker. But the Bible, James 3, calls us to be peacemakers. You've got to enter the conflict. You've got to see what the root of the conflict is, and you've got to bring the peace of God into that relationship, and you've got to talk about it, and you've got to work through it until all of a sudden it's not your way or his way, it's God's way, and both adjust to it. That's why most conflict resolution fails. It's either my way or your way. No, the Bible says it's God's way. Now you've got to adjust to it. That takes humility. That means you've got to get off the throne. You've got to get down on the ground before God. And Abigail is doing exactly that. What a wise, peacemaking woman. Look at verse 24. She diverts the guilt from her husband. She puts it on herself. She, she accepts the responsibility. Look at verse 25. She asks David to not regard her husband because her husband can't help but be a fool. That's his nature, she says. He can't do anything but be foolish. Look at verse 26. She bravely counsels David, future king, not to take revenge, but to let God handle what happened. This is a wise woman. Look at verse 28. She says that he should fight, David should fight the Lord's battles, not those who insult him. This isn't God's battle. This is your battle, David. What courage she has. Look at verse 29. She appeals for David to trust in God's protection from his enemies. Listen, this is really what's going on. David is scared. David has fled Saul. Samuel is dead. Samuel was his protection. And now he's running from Saul. And that fear makes him want to lash out. She says, don't do it. And look at verse 30. Don't become the king of Israel by working out your own plans. Listen to what the Bible says. A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. And he responds to her. Look at what she does as she makes peace. She speaks the truth. Remember what we said? You got to speak the truth and you got to do it graciously. And when you combine the two, you're a peacemaker. And he says to her, verse 33, blessed be your discretion and blessed be you, Abigail, our unsung hero, who have kept me this day from blood guilt and from working salvation with my own hand. Now watch what happens when she returns to her bad marriage. Her foolish husband is happy with all the money 
that's been coming in from all the wool and he's holding a feast and he gets very, very drunk. She wisely waits until the wine moves out of him. In other words, modern day vernacular gets over his hangover. And then she tells him what she had done. She tells him that David came, was coming to kill him. And the Bible says he became like a stone. He either had a stroke or he had a heart attack. And he goes into a coma. And he goes into a coma for 10 days. And at 10 days, at the end of it, God comes and takes Nabal's life. We've got a good woman and a bad marriage. And she is faithful to her husband. She is incredibly wise. And ladies, listen, if you are married to a foolish man, your heart might be turning bitter. It might be becoming hardened. But let Abigail be your unsung hero. Let her show you how to be a faithful wife and a wise woman and to trust God to be your refuge and strength, a very present help. In times of trouble. Listen, God will deliver you, maybe not in this life, but He certainly will mete out justice in the next. Yet the, the greatest impact of Abigail, yes, it's incredible that she was a faithful wife, married to this man. It's incredible that she was such a wise woman to the future king of Israel. But the most incredible, most amazing character of Abigail is this one. You ready? And this is what we're going to spend the rest of our time on. She was a godly example. Listen, I deal with faithful wives all the time. And I deal with women who are wise, but not always godly. And I do the same with men. And guess what? I could be that way too. Sometimes I'm not the most godly example. Abigail was a godly example. And remember last week, if you were here, we saw that Jephthah, with Jephthah, the story, the gospel story, is all through the Old Testament. You remember what I said? The New Testament, or rather the Old Testament, is the New Testament concealed. In other words, the New Testament's all through the Old Testament. You just got to have your eyes open to it. And the New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. It's made clear but the gospel it doesn't matter where you are on the pages of scripture the gospel is right in front of you or it's maybe a little ways away but you can always see it you're never out of sight of the gospel anywhere in the word of god and once again we're going to see that now you ready this is where we jump into the story like nabal you know what, let me even dare you to contradict this. It'd be a little provocative, get you thinking. Like Nabal, you and I, we've been foolish. We've been badly behaved. We've been selfish and sinful. Is there really not a Nabal in this room? Have we not wanted what we want and sinned? The Bible says everybody has sinned, fallen short of the glory of God. There is no one who does good. Not even one. This is the great leveler. I love this truth. It's the great leveler of the gospel. Did you know that the ground at the foot of the cross is perfectly level? There's not some who made it 
pretty far and they just need a little bit of the gospel they just need a little bit of the blood of christ to get over the top of that mountain of holiness and and then there's others that are wow they've hardly even started the journey they need a lot of the blood listen that's not true the ground at the foot of the cross is entirely level there is nobody that is good there is nobody that is even close to being righteous enough for god to heal and to forgive and to give salvation listen there's not even anybody that's ever done anything to the level of god's holiness so everybody is on the same footing at the face of the cross now listen you've got to know that because there's people even a couple weeks ago somebody said oh pastor tim you know what you're so godly and i don't think you probably do anything wrong and i'm like oh please don't talk to my wife <laughs> just maintain that outlook that's not what I said. Are you kidding me? I am as much in need of grace as you are. I am no further than you are by way of my own holiness. It is all about what God is doing in me, and it's what God is doing in you. The ground is level at the base of the cross. Listen to what Isaiah says. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We've, we've, we've turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. How ironic, isn't it, that Nabal owned 3,000 sheep, yet rejected David, the anointed shepherd of Israel? God has shown kindness to all people. He's guarded the sheep of our fields. He's guarded our lives. This is common grace. Even the wicked get common grace. He's guarded the sheep of our fields like David did for Nabal. This is common grace. Here's what Matthew says. Jesus speaks. For our Father in heaven makes his son rise on the evil and on the good, and he sends rain on the just and the unjust. Listen, God's grace is for everybody. Because we're all in need of it. Yet Nabal, and listen, just like you and just like me, Nabal returned evil for good, verse 21. Catch that in there. Look at verse 21. He returned evil for good. He rejected the messengers of David as Israel rejected the prophets. And David and his army strapped on their swords and they're bringing certain wrath and destruction to him. And Nabal and all his house needed salvation from the wrath of david this is the gospel you've just got to have your eyes open to it now here's here's abigail pretend that somebody is about to shoot you and they've got a line of sight on you and they pull the trigger and the bullet is just about to leave the barrel of that gun and someone who loves you, who is faithful and wise, jumps in front of that bullet and takes the bullet instead of you. Thought it sound familiar. Well, this is what Abigail did. She put herself in between David and her husband. Wives, do you understand this is your great power? Ladies, listen, do you understand that you can intercede for your husbands, that you can get between God and your foolish husbands? You can interpose and pray for his deliverance. That's your power. 
You could do that with your children. I know a lady in our church whose son was dating a, a girl that he, she knew was not for him. She was not walking with the Lord. She said, you know what, God, you won't listen to me. I'm just going to pray. I'm going to pray that you will break this relationship up. Listen, she interposed herself in between those two, and God moved, and within weeks, that relationship was done. The power of a praying mother. You can stand before God on behalf of your husbands, on behalf of their children, and when we men act foolishly, you can mediate God's grace to them. That's your power, ladies. She rides to David. She bows herself to him. She says to David, let the guilt of Nabal be on me. She falls at his feet and says, on me alone, my Lord, be the guilt, verse 24. And suddenly, suddenly, we're struck, aren't we? Well, how similar is the ministry of Jesus? Here is Abigail, who is now a, represent, a representative of Jesus. She's doing what the Son of God is going to do as he stands before the wrath of his father and sinful people like us. Jesus, who rode on a donkey on a mission of peace just days before his crucifixion, Jesus on that cross at noon interposed himself between the holy God and sinful humanity and took upon himself the guilt of our sins. He, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. Listen, this is what Abigail does. But there's more. No Old Testament stories and no characters from Scripture are ever perfectly going to foreshadow the gospel of Jesus. How can they? They're, they're flawed people like us. But the glimpses and the reflections that we get off of them are like the reflections of a lake that are far below the valley. They're teasers that say something good is coming. And at Abigail, she bows down before David. Her words echo the words that Christ will utter from the cross to his father. Listen, Father, forgive them, Jesus prayed, for they know not what they do. And she says to David in verse 25, Let not my Lord regard this worthless fellow, Nabal, for as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name and folly is with him. She's saying, just forgive him. Don't treat him as he deserves. Let your grace flow to my husband. And then she lifts up David with words that point to Jesus, the shepherd and the overseer of our souls. Look at verse 28. Please forgive the trespass of your servant, for the Lord will certainly make my Lord a sure house, because the Lord, my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord, and evil shall not be found in you so long as you live. This is Jesus who did no wrong, who never sinned, who upheld the law perfectly. David didn't do that. This is a representative of the Messiah. And God will sling out, look at verse 29, his son's enemies. And he's going to make them a footstool for his feet. She sees the gospel. She sees the one who is coming. And she is interposing and she is interceding for her foolish husband. We saw David pointed 
appointed prince over Israel, as Jesus would be highly exalted, Philippians says, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Listen, it wasn't for David to work salvation for himself. That was the work of the Messiah, Isaiah 59. Then his own arm, the, Jesus, his own arm brought him salvation and his righteousness upheld him. This is the gospel. Now let me, let me take, I'm going to transfer to one more incredible thing about Abigail, but listen, I've got to make sure you're with me on this. Let me put it this way. Ladies, when you live like Abigail, you intercede for your husband even when he is foolish and gruff and boorish, not very loving to you. You are bringing the power of the gospel to your marriage. That's the greatest thing I'm going to tell you today. You can bring the power of the gospel to your marriage. And God will move. David answers. And when he does, he reveals that Abigail is a great example of God's grace. Look at verse 33. Blessed Abigail, be your discretion, and blessed be you who have kept me this day from blood guilt and from working salvation with my own hand. David would have been wrong if he had done that. God would have dealt with him and disciplined if he had done that. Well, you've heard the saying, right, that but for the grace of God there go I. It's grace, it's the grace of God that has appeared, Titus 2 says, and it brings salvation for all people. Now listen, it trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled and upright in the present age. This is now the Holy Spirit. Abigail, who represented Christ quite ably, now begins to represent the Holy Spirit, who restrains us from sin. She shows the grace that can work in a marriage. And that grace, that grace can work in a lot of ways. Let me give you a few of them. You ready? Here we go. I'm going to fire these at you. The growing up in a Christian home. Did you grow up in a Christian home? Sometimes that drove you nuts. You're in church every week. I know somebody here right now who along with me was in church every week of her life. And usually the last person to leave and she'd be there like I was growing up because my dad was an elder in the church going, can we just go home? You grew up in a Christian church or a Christian home. It can restrain great sin. If you've grown up in a Christian home, be thankful for it. Christian friendship restrains sin. The Bible says whoever walks with the wise becomes wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. Listen, if you're bringing around you worthless people, they're going to bring you down. That is a promise and a principle of the word of God. You surround yourself with wise people and you're going to be wise. Christian fellowship in a church, exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. What restrains sin in us? Listen, Christian homes, Christian friends, Christian fellowship, sometimes God restrains sin by not allowing you to make the money that you want to make. Isn't that what Proverbs prays? Don't give me too much money that I might forget you, God, and don't give me too little that I might be tempted to steal. Just give me what I need, and I will walk in you. That's the restraint of sin. Sometimes our limitations physically restrain us. 
A friend of mine just got diagnosed with cancer, testifying, listen, listen to this, testifying that since the cancer has come into his life, he has had a singular desire to love God, to be obedient, to forgive those who have wronged him. Listen, physical ailments can restrain sin. And we fight against them. We get bitter to God about them. And God's saying, listen, if you could just see from my vantage point, and you can know and understand, I put this in your life so that you would not sin. Then you would thank me for what you're going through. Sometimes those unforeseen circumstances, like a couple from our church walking down the street randomly, meeting a lady who planned on killing herself that day, Listen, they restrain sin. Those circumstances can do that. Or that unexpected phone call as you, were, as you were stepping on that forbidden path of temptation, and all of a sudden here comes a phone call of somebody, and it just breaks the power. And sometimes it's that timely devotional that day or a sermon on the radio that strengthens you to resist the temptation that you didn't even know was about to come your, your way that day. Listen, God restrains sin beyond what we're even aware of. The grace of God restrains our flesh and teaches us to say no to ungodliness. So let me conclude with this look at our unsung hero, Abigail. Let me sum up a, a, a few lessons, I think, of inspiration. She's married to an unloving, foolish man. You might find yourself exactly where she was. Yet she was utterly faithful to him. Her entire marriage, utterly faithful. There is no record that Nabal was abusing her. Now listen, if this is an abuse issue, my sermon's going to go in a different direction. This is an abuse. It's just an unloving, not very kind man, gruff. It's all about himself and doesn't really care much for anybody else. Listen, that's a miserable marriage. But she never took revenge into her hands. She didn't tell David what, he, what a fool her husband was and, and kind of step out of the way and let him have it. She didn't do that. She could have. She didn't pray or wish death on him. She interceded for him, and God took matters into his own hands. And whether justice is going to be seen in this life or in glory, listen, ladies, you who are married to boorish, mean, unloving men, God will bring justice eventually. But secondly, she showed grace to her husband, even though he did not deserve it. And the flesh, listen, I, I know this occurs, the flesh of an unloved woman who's hearing that recoils from this and says, well, I'll show grace when he begins to give it. But all of a sudden, listen, Hebrews 12, there's a great cloud of witnesses around us, Christian brother and sister, and they are spurring us on. And guess what? Abigail is in the stadium and she's looking down at you, old ladies who are married to difficult men. And she's saying to you, get up. Love him, be faithful, I set the way for you. Because what you're doing is not the way of the redeemed. And God will shine his good pleasure upon you. He will lift up your weary 
head. So be faithful, be wise, be a godly example, and be the unsung hero to others that Abigail has been to us. Amen.